0: Hi, welcome to Tabs Two Cents. Today on the show, we have Simon Hanjahan. We're talking about investing. Hope you enjoy the show.
1: Welcome to Tabs Two Cents, the show where we discuss multiple income streams and macro factors affecting the world today.
0: Welcome back to the show. Good to be back. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course, anytime. So, the last time you were on, I made a note here, it was September 27th, 2021, and you were actually episode two. Of the tabs two cents podcast. So welcome back. That was back when you were cratering value, of course, but now you're margin of safety. And uh is it margin of safety now still, or is it margin yeah, of safety? Uh, mar- margin of safety, yeah. Now? Yeah. You know, since then you've had a lot of success with your sub stack. I wonder if you could just give a little introduction for some people who may not have seen episode two, which is probably most most people. <laughs>
1: Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, it's been a long road since then, I guess, for both of us in some ways. Um, yeah, my sub uh, substack has been doing pretty well there. I write up you know, all kinds of different business ideas for investments, publicly traded stock ideas there. Uh, you can also follow my portfolio there. I'm, I'm pretty much an open book. For the most part, like high-quality ideas, um, long-term plays for the most part. And uh, yeah, so it's uh, marginofsafetyinvesting.com. And uh, you can also follow me on Twitter Uh, as pretty good spot to to track what's going on there. So feel free to sign up free for everyone.
0: Absolutely. And what's your Twitter handle there? Just for anyone wondering,
1: I think it's Moss underscore investing, M-O-S underscore investing. Awesome.
0: Yeah, I actually checked out your portfolio before the show here. And one thing that stood out to me, for sure, kind of an elephant in the room is you have Constellation Software is forty four point nine, so forty five percent of your portfolio. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about why you feel the urge to build such a large position in that company, and you know some of the characteristics that you like from them.
1: Yeah, for sure, Joe. Um, it is something that I think stands out to most people when they see that, and I will admit it almost seems like a ridiculous size position when you first look at it as a percentage. There's a lot of things to kind of keep in mind, I suppose, like as an individual investor, it's not like I'm managing, you know, tens of millions of dollars by any means. And kind of the objectives are a little bit different than, say, I was managing a fund as well. So with that in mind, the size is still pretty big. It, it was initially a bit smaller and relative to the other positions in the, in the portfolio, it's done kind of uh, quite a bit better over the last uh, couple of years since I've held it over two years now, I think. And so as it's done well, I've added to it as well. So it's one of those kind of water the flowers and, and cut the weeds type of scenario as well. Um, in terms of comfort, like <clears throat> it's an interesting one in that, like, although it's one publicly traded uh, name, it's kind of akin to a, an index in some ways. Like it's got exposure to hundreds of underlying businesses and the generic industry they're in is like vertical vertical market software. But that being said, like they're actually exposed to many different regions all over the world and different industries that those vertical um, markets kind of uh, serve their end customers. So in terms of diversity, it's actually uh, unbelievably diverse from that perspective. The balance sheet is, is um, pretty strong as well. Like they don't really use like large amounts of debt to fund uh, their acquisitions or anything like that. And they're generally buying like very tiny small businesses on a relative scale. So in terms of uh, risk, the business fundamentals are pretty risk averse, I would say, despite like the high top end growth. Yeah. So for those reasons, like I feel pretty comfortable, there's, there's not very many names that I would feel that comfortable having such a large position, obviously, but I guess the other thing is like, so it's, it's risk averse in one way. It's not exactly like a cheap name by any means, but. It's pretty tough to beat in terms of like the quality of the business model. So the capital allocation, really, it's like been systematized despite like a lot of people give like Mark Bennett, they're honored the CEO, like the president, a lot of credit for that, uh, the founder, and he's still there, but really he's not doing anything day to day. So he set up like the system to be this kind of more resilient way that's decentralized. So uh, a lot of those like capital allocation decisions has been kind of program, programmed in, I guess, if you want to think of it that way. So there's less of a of a one-man running the helm type of risk as well, which I don't know if people fully uh, appreciate that as much as as they attribute a lot of the success to Leonard, which I I'll, I'll give him credit, like he got the ball rolling there. But at this point, really, it's the system that's going to continue going, hopefully for a long time. So... Anyway, it's a, it's a kind of a love it or hate it name. Like it's been getting lots of hate as well. I think people are skeptical or it almost seems like some people are a little bit jealous of the performance recently because the, a lot of other industries haven't, haven't really kept up and it's been able to kind of withstand some of those sort of shocks. So it's an interesting one. I I don't think I have like special insights that way to the business that much, but compared to, you know, some other people who probably understand it even a lot more than I do in some ways. But um, it's one of those things where when you find something good, I don't know that it makes a lot of sense to make like a small bet. (laughs) It's interesting. Like you think about people who maybe would have identified something like Berkshire pathway decades ago and if they fully recognized kind of the models being superior and buffett being like the kind of the unbelievable investor that he was and he is it'd be kind of astonishing to with hindsight look back and say well i recognized it uh understood the value and only put two percent of my portfolio into it <laughs> um, and then stuck up you know equal weighted it with other names that i had no real like long-term quality uh, aspirations for so I think it's interesting that way as well. I don't know, what do you think like would you would you ever really consider something like that like a such a high position? I, I don't I think it's fair for most people to say they wouldn't.
0: I really like the TSX 60 mm-hmm. and I think that it's a kind of a smaller ETF and you know everybody's different in the way that they like to to build their portfolios and I think whatever works for you is probably The best thing. If you have the confidence to hold that position with that large of a holding, then you know, hey, all the power to you. And it could work out. As you say, there are some comparisons to Berkshire, especially the way they like to diversify their holdings and the way that they acquire. And it sounds like you're in a position where I've always said that I would prefer to average up on a company than average down. And, you know, if you're kind of committed to dollar cost averaging into that company and it happens to appreciate for you along the way, then yeah, it's going to build. You look at Berkshire and there's Apple holdings and that capital has worked out well for him. It continues to grow and it's not like he's going to sell it. As you say, you don't want to pull out the flowers. So I think it's, you know, a decent strategy if you have the gut for it. You know, if you if it's going to go down you know, 30, 40% at some point, and you can hold through that, then whatever works. And, you know, for anyone listening, um, there's a really good, we study billionaires episode. It's uh 696 and Clay Fink talks about Mark Leonard and they go over consolation as well as an investment. I think it's, you know, a great listen for anyone who's interested in that stock as well, which is, you know, during that episode, one thing that stood out to me is their serial acquirers mentality. And I know that that's something that you're really interested in as well. I know you've written a blog on it, so or sorry, a Substack blog. I wonder if you'd talk a little bit about the serial acquirer mentality yeah. and, and what what that means to you when you when you see that in a business.
1: It's a, certainly a popular model out there among uh, certain investors, and um, I I think I'm attracted to it for a few reasons. You know, I think everyone appreciates at some point eventually that you want to buy something that can really have a long runway for reinvestment. So whatever that reinvestment might look like. So the ideal kind of case is organically reinvest and grow uh, your, your end market. Uh, something like Coca-Cola over like a hundred year period, being able to sell more Cokes to more people and raising prices that way. That kind of model makes a lot of sense. It, there's not a lot of businesses that can really do that for that amount of time uh, to that extent. I think the, the serial acquirer type model is easier for me to uh, appreciate how they get there in terms of being able to sustain that growth that way. Now, that being said, like there's a lot of roll up type models that may or may not work. So there's a lot of things I'd like to think about if I'm going to invest in a serial acquirer. So Constellation is kind of the, I don't know, has been like the golden standard for a lot of people to kind of reference. And a few of their characteristics of uh, highlight what's important so to me i really like a serial acquirer that obviously has a lot of targets to go after Um, so a very fragmented market perhaps would be an interesting one you want something that can go for the next couple of decades without running out of room so the other thing to consider is like you want to be able to acquire at at a low valuation so there's some serial acquirers who struggle with that where As they grow, they end up having to do more and more acquisitions. And then in order to to continue the growth rates as you grow bigger, you have to chase larger and larger deals. And that can be like rather difficult to do in a very sustainable way in terms of like, good growth so you can buy anything if you pay enough money for it so if you have to kind of continually like up the size of the deals chances are you're going to be paying a lot uh, more of a premium price and that's something like constellations had to battle against over the years and, and to be honest like they're starting to have to do a few bigger deals uh here and there so those are a few of the characteristics that you have to really look for just like any business but like it's probably even more evident in uh serial acquires like you really have to be able to trust the management that they're doing it on behalf of shareholders. So really have to make sure that they're incentivized to do the right kind of deals and not just to grow like revenues and and not care about anything else. So it's not about like kingdom growing uh, that way. And then the last thing I'd say is to watch out for is I think a lot of the serial acquires will maybe only be kind of able to sustain momentum in terms of growing profitably during uh, the good times, right? So if you're exposed to an underlying industry that suffers during a downturn or requires a lot more capital um, or requires a lot of debt to do the to finance, the deals, then um, that's a kind of a, a risk to at least consider um, when you're looking at you know a roll-up strategy or a serial acquire. So I'm very attracted to those types of models. I, I think um, it's maybe just my personality. It's just easier for me to kind of get my head around how they can sustain like high returns for a long time. But at the same time, it's easy to get like trapped into like these types of models that have a lot of downside as well. So you got to be kind of careful not to get sucked into the high debt or going after big deals or having an incentive model for management that's not really aligned with long-term like shareholder interests that way those types of things. You just got to really be careful.
0: Yeah, for sure. I think like with any business, any model, there's always going to be risks and, you know, using debt to finance new acquisitions is probably one of the major red flags think in my opinion, I, I haven't done too much research on the
1: serial acquirer
0: model. Like what, I think even the debt thing,
1: like it, it, there's a lot of nuance to it. There's some models that have worked really well, like Transdime is an example where they've been unbelievably successful. I think because of the people doing the deals are, are very intelligent about how they go about doing them and they understand the value and what they're buying. The other thing with something like Transdime trans is that like the underlying businesses are, are very good. Like they've got a lot of power over their suppliers and their customers. So like it can work in some cases. Uh, I don't know that like I'm smart enough to figure out, you know, what the risks are with something like Transdime. Um, but it's, it's an example of something that's done um, superbly well, despite, you know, using debt to, to fund the, the roll up that way.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I'll have to look into those guys and, and see what I think about that. Thanks for that. The reason I brought that up, the serial acquirer, is because I know that you've recently been made a purchase of Atlas Engineering products. So this company now, AEP.v is the ticker, is now 7.3% of your portfolio so you've got constellation software and then you've got Atlas engineering products and from what I understand they're a serial acquirer and wood products and they kind of work in the Canadian construction area I wonder if you' could talk a little bit about them and why you found them so attractive
1: yeah for sure they're um a relatively new position uh, I, I wrote them up a little while ago and the, and the um the idea you're right they're kind of a, a serial acquirer related to the construction uh, industry there that they acquire trust manufacturing plants. Uh, so far, they have uh, seven in Canada, uh, in different areas. They're still kind of ramping up. You know the acquisitions that they're planning on making. Over the last little while, they focused on like improving the plants that they did have operationally. So like improving the margin profiles and just the production uh, optimizations that way. So whether it's investing in their facilities or, you know, scheduling dealing with um, suppliers to get better rates on uh, their products. In the last little while, they've also been re- repurchasing shares because interestingly enough, like they were trading uh, at around like two and a half to four times uh, normalized kind of EBITDA. And their peers that they're going out looking to acquire were trading at like four, four or and a half times. So instead of using the cash to acquisitions to grow, they just cannibalize themselves because they saw a better value there, which to me is a good sign because they're not sheerly focused on going after like buying and getting bigger and bigger and bigger. They're really focused on per share value. So in terms of capital allocation, I think that's a pretty good sign that you're actually focused on the right thing for investors. Part of the reason why I was able to make it like reasonably si- good size with um, a portfolio one, I like think I understand it pretty well. It's a relatively straightforward business to understand. It's, um, it's not terribly complex that way. Two is like, <clears throat> it's a, at the size where it's not really something a uh, a big fund can can go after or or anything like that. So I think if it was a bigger operation, then you would see the the valuation be quite a bit higher. So I think now is kind of the opportunity to. to Take a stab at that one. I'm I'm pretty happy with with how it is. Like I'm not looking to add any more at this point. It's a big enough position there that way there's still definitely some risk like it's exposed to new construction in Canada and as you know like it's been with rates going up and stuff there's a bit of a short-term crunch I think in in housing in some sense like affordability has been tough so there's definitely some short-term headwinds there a little bit of short-term risk but their balance sheet's been I think pretty strong so I don't know that there's like a, a scenario where they have any problems that way longer term but they may you know their growth might slow over the shorter term that way so, yeah, the other interesting thing about them is that they've, they're run by their founder, Hattie Habasi, and, um, he's been really, uh, kind of, I would describe him as an interesting character for sure. Uh, he's, uh, I think very like fanatical about the business. He's been in the industry for like 30 years and, and it's kind of his baby. So it's an interesting uh, case where the founder's still there. I think he's figured out recently like the, some of the value of, of thinking like the capital capital allocation strategy uh, a little bit more clearly. And uh, the other part of the kind of the story there would be like medium and longer term, there's uh, secular trends that are going in the right direction for the business. So you think about housing supply and demand in, in Canada and in some other places in, in the States as well that they could expand into. And there's, a, there's definitely like a, a mismatch in terms of the supply demand story. So I think we've been kind of underdeveloping over the last while. And with immigration, like you look at the immigration numbers in Canada in last year, some of that's like catch up from the previous year with uh, limited ability to do immigration. But there's certainly like a pretty big uh, shortage over the next decade, I think. And I think if you couple that with some of the challenges with labor for construction, the idea of like doing trusts, work off site and then shipping it on. The whole the whole like trend in that area uh at all is that like it saves a lot of effort on site. So I think those things coupled together like the the housing shortage so that will mean that more new builds uh, are required and then you couple that with uh, lack of skilled trade for the construction uh this is, offers like an ability to kind of save on some of the need for the construction and then they recently started getting into um if uh, roof roof treasures weren't boring enough for you like <laughs> they started getting into um selling like walls as well so pre-formed walls essentially and shipping those to site which again like it's, it's, it sounds super boring, but you think about a new build, uh, house, you get the roof trusses. If those, that's pretty common product these days. And then all of a sudden you're going to be starting to sell like preformed walls and maybe floors and things like that. Then you can see all of a sudden, well, I've got roofs. Now I've got walls. The organic growth there is actually pretty strong, uh, potentially. So I think given like they're rolling up essentially like a fragmented mom and pop type sector, uh, in the construction industry and they're have the, uh, cap- like they have the capability to, they know how to do this. And then they also have some organic growth, which you're kind of getting for free, I think, uh, it's, a, it's kind of an opportunity right now that is probably undervalued. So there's a lot of like, uh, factors kind of potentially lining up over the next little while. And I think the price is probably where it is because it's a it's a microcap, and it's also kind of in a boring what looks like a secular uh, a cyclical rather industry. So I think a lot of people are thinking that the housing kind of boom is maybe started to peak. But I think what people aren't necessarily doing is um, they're kind of lumping housing all together. And I don't know that like housing sale volumes and new construction are necessarily as closely connected as what some people think, you know, I think you resale volumes and that's maybe not as closely connected to, um, to new builds as, as what most people initially might think. So anyway, we'll see. That's the idea anyway.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. I think there are some fairly strong tailwinds in the Canadian construction area. And mm-hmm. where my mind goes with this is a couple places. And, you know, of course, what do I know? But like, I can always like to speculate sometimes. And I think what, for one thing, people are building larger homes. So, you know, of course, that takes more wood, which is good for them. So, you know, for every house you look at, you know, people are building, you know, 1800 square foot homes when they used to build like, you know, 1200 square foot home or whatever. For sure. And uh, I'm pretty sure that last immigration number we got was an all time record. I think it was like over a million people in a hard. year. Yeah. So it was like an all time record for Canada. And, you know, potentially with these high rates, people aren't going to want to sell their homes. So, you know, what's the solution? They're going to have to build, you know, affordable housing for people. And that's going to, it's going to take wood products. So, you know, I think there are some tailwinds there. What's interesting about this company is I just looked it up while we were talking to, at the close. It's Friday today. So, at the close, the market cap was 54 million. So, you know, this is one of those kind of micro cap. Type businesses. I wonder if you'd like to expand a little bit on on that strategy, not necessarily for Atlas Engineering, but just you know microcaps in general. Because yeah. you hit on a you hit the nail on the head when you said you know big funds aren't going to go into these. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that as a you know yeah. small time individual
1: investor. I think uh, like microcaps microcaps has has been uh, an area that I've started spending a lot more time over the last uh, call it six months maybe. I think, for you know, there's a lot of advantages that the individual kind of um, small investor can, can at least consider if you're going to, if you're going to be a small investor and you're going to pick stocks, it, it probably doesn't make sense to have your whole portfolio be like the biggest names that everyone knows um, and everyone invests in. And, and I'm being a bit hypocritical because really like my portfolio is not filled with microcaps by any means but I'm also not necessarily looking to like be the best stock picker in the world and outperform, uh, by a thousand percent. A lot of mine is also trying to like preserve capital. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of, uh, opportunity, um, to be honest, especially in Canada, the venture exchange is is kind of looked at as some degenerate gambling, uh, fraud late laden, uh, exchange, uh, with, you know, junior miners and things like that. Um, nothing against junior miners, but they do have a reputation sometimes. So, and I, I think that's uh, simply not the case. Uh, if you look, you just have to look a little, a little bit more closely. You have to kind of squint a little bit. And, and, and I think if you focus on not necessarily um, for me anyway, I, I think that the best opportunities for me to, to find some, a few names in the microcap space is really just focusing on finding some simple businesses that they're not going to have the world's biggest moats or anything like that, but they're probably going to be often like founder led um, by insider ownership. And if you can find a few that are like profitable, you know, maybe that's a good way, like consistently profitable. That's probably a good way to narrow down your universe and um, focus on the ones you can understand. And I, yeah, I think the advantage is, like you said, you know, big funds just can't, they can't play there. So the, a lot of these names are just overlooked. The illiquidity is something that. Think a small investor can really use to their advantage you know if, if spending a, um, a few thousand dollars on, on an investment is uh gonna move like the average volume for the day then that's maybe a sign that um, those are the types of names uh small investors should be looking at now if if they're long-term serious long-term investors and they're not obviously these things can't be traded because you can't jump in and out of them so that's something that's something that i've had to kind of learn as well i think over the last little while is um starting to look at these names, and you can't simply click the button and buy the stock. They really do. <laughs> they can sit there for days and days and, and weeks and months even. So it's interesting from that way too. Like I think one advantage that I've learned a lot with is just patience with micro caps. Um, I think it's easier to be kind of get in and out as much as you like and, and as in and whatever name you like in big and large cap. And I think in micro cap, it, it does kind of test your patience. The other thing it does is, um, I think, because of the illiquidity as well. I think it really forces you to think long and hard about the investment because you know you're not going to be able to just get out of it. You're kind of you're you're putting yourself in a position where you really do you can't kind of fake yourself into it. Like you do have to think about owning it for years. I think at that point, if you're gonna you're gonna buy it, so I think that's an advantage mentally. I know it is for me compared to a name that I could trade in and out of all day and the market wouldn't even know I'm there, I think it's, um, I think it's an advantage because it really forces you to think more than you maybe otherwise would.
0: Yeah, for sure. I think it's a different style of investing. I know that I've bought some small cap stocks and generally one thing that I learned as well was to kind of let the price come to you. You know if you're patient because it is so liquid as you say sometimes these stocks will move down you know 10 12 percent in a day and then maybe that's the time when you you know buy a little bit and then you know let them roam around and you, you can't necessarily let those you know movements in price get to your head because there will be a lot of volatility just due to the nature of the the business and micro caps yeah um you said a couple things there. Uh, one that just sort of brings me back to a couple prior podcasts. And I had Andy Wong on here. And one thing he said that his dad taught him, which was a he's a major fund manager was that earnings matter. So you know, that's kind of just his motto is that earnings matter. And if, if you get a company that continues to grow its earnings, and every quarter is, you know, showing some growth, micro cap or not that, you know, that could be a good company. So you know, maybe it's one that's valued a little bit better because it's overlooked from larger funds and you know another thing that you mentioned was you know maybe these companies as well because they're not as large they don't have the best margins because they they don't have you know the economics of scale to to back them up and i had shibam garg on here and he one thing he said about we were talking about oil companies and i said well what about scale like you know you get your shells of the world who can just you know you know build these massive margins because they have scale and everything's a little bit cheaper to them and he said well if you believe in the oil thesis that the price is going to be high for longer you know, these companies will get scale eventually. So, you know, if you, if you think their earnings are going to continue to grow, and the business is going to grow, then over time, they'll get to that scale, and they'll be able to extend those margins. So, you know, there's a lot of upside, and there's also a lot of risk in micro caps, it's just kind of a more of a risk, more risk, more reward kind of a deal with yeah. those. Yeah, for sure. And uh, one thing I just, you know, one thing I wanted to bring up was, those are just some things that I've learned from guests on the show. And I, I noticed that you had a uh, you wrote a blog about Charlie Munger and Poor Charlie's Almanac and some key takeaways. I wonder if there's any investors or, you know, influencers. I don't want to say influencers, but, you know, financial media people that you've learned some lessons from. And if you want to just share some of those, either from, you know, Charlie Munger or Buffett or whoever, some things uh, that have stuck. Yeah,
1: to. yeah, sure. I could probably. I'm sure I've... Um... I've definitely, like, absorbed a lot from different people over the last while, you know, especially being more active in the social space. I think it's, um, you know, if you think about what uh, Charlie Munger, as the example, a lot of people love him or hate him, I guess. Um, he didn't get to where he is by being dumb. But also, I just think, I think the bigger takeaways from a lot of these people is that they're able to think independently. I sometimes see like I think the, the lesson that Charlie likes to put on the world is you know he, he has strong opinions about the things he has strong opinions about, and then he has no real opinions about the other things, which I find interesting. And then you look at someone like you know, someone like Joel Greenblatt, for instance, and the guy just like loves figuring things out, and then he has that combined with like no real emotion towards his ideas. So I think those are some of the you look at all the the best investors and I think that often what the what they all have in common is like they don't really let their emotions come into play when they're thinking and they're also not influenced by like dogma they have their own beliefs. They might be able to like learn from other people and, and continue like opening their mind and learning different things, but they don't let other people kind of influence their, their brain um, that way in in a dogmatic way. So like in a, in a way that isn't based on anything. And I, you know, it's easy for me to say that and I still fall victim to it all the time. Uh, So (laughs) it's um something that i think i aspire to but it's not something that you ever i don't think fully get to if that makes sense so yeah like if i think if i think about myself like a lot, a lot of the kind of uh, focus on high quality over the last few years i think i'm kind of loosening the grip on that idea not to say that i don't still think it's valid i think it just uh, it kind of depends So I think I'm likely more in line with thinking about, you know, if you think about the micro-cap space, you're probably not necessarily, like you're not necessarily going to find like the most highest quality uh, businesses there. Um, But what you can find is other advantages like the valuation for what you're getting. So there might still be a lot of growth potential in a small name that doesn't necessarily require the business to be the highest quality or the strongest moat. That a larger business like needs a larger moat to protect against uh, its competitors, right? So I think that that's the type of idea where my thinking is starting to evolve on those things. And I'm sure it's being influenced by all kinds of different factors, but I like to think that I'm kind of developing some of those ideas uh, myself by, you know, reflecting on on my decisions as an investor. So yeah, I I think those are the takeaways from like the kind of the, the Charlie Mungers of the world is is you should be kind of continually learning and, and like I look at you and what you're doing with your podcast and that's a great example too. Just like trying to learn from different people and you're not necessarily being influenced by them, but you're taking away little bits and pieces that make sense and you're building like your own uh, lattice work of, of mental models. So that makes sense?
0: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I just try to, you know, pick smart people's brains and, you know, if I can get a little tidbit of information from somebody that kind of, sticks with me like Andy Wong's earnings matter like that really stuck with me I'm like he's right you know like what why am I buying a company who isn't growing their earnings when there's you know thousands of companies out there that are right so and if you can build a portfolio of companies that are growing their earnings you're probably going to be okay you Mm -hmm. know regardless of this you know speculative nature of of other companies that are, you know, negative earnings, yeah. you know, and it's like, sure, they could be, you know, 1000 beggars or whatever. But it's like, you're probably going to do better the other way. And I, I haven't necessarily I found for me, at least I haven't fully retained all this into building my portfolio yet, but I'm hoping over the years that I've managed to kind of, you know, build a nice portfolio from the different ideas that I get on the show. And one thing that we discussed before this was the ability to invest alongside great management teams. So, you know, perhaps I'm never going to get somebody like Bruce Flatt from Brookfield on the show. But I can give Bruce my money and say, do your best in this world we live in. So I wonder if that's something that you find attractive as well. And I wonder if you'd talk a little bit about the benefits behind giving your money to smart people. Yeah,
1: I don't know if this is a function of like uh, me just getting older, but I do find myself having, I think, less strong opinions about how smart I am. And I think when you get our kids as they grow up, they kind of seem to know everything when they're five. And so I think um, some of that is starting to wear off for me. So <laughs> the older I get, the more I shift my focus towards me having to figure everything out and determining like where best to invest my money the next, you know, today, tomorrow. And then if you think of it a different way, I have started to think how how important like the management team is in terms of their capital allocation so if you think about longer time periods so for a business if you think about a decade which is a very very long time for most people to invest um, the capital allocation decisions that the management team makes will be an enormous part of the math function of how how well the business does like per share right so that that math kind of checks out as long as you think about it for a few minutes, like it kind of doesn't matter in the short term what management really does, as long as they don't destroy, you know, the business over the short term. Uh, if they just kind of keep their hands off of it, then short periods of time doesn't have a huge impact. But if you think about longer periods, they can really compound really the, the fundamentals of the business by deciding what to do with the excess cash that the organization makes, right? So if you think of it that way, then yeah, the business model does matter quite a bit. And the relationship with the stakeholders, like customers and suppliers, they still matter. None of that goes away. But over top of that, kind of like um, really like the outer layer, like the crust, of the whole thing is what the management team decides to do with that excess cash. And I think the older I get, the more I'm focusing on picking someone who's going to do the right thing in those shoes. And so I don't think that I'm thinking about the business quality any less, like the business model and and those other things. But I think I'm thinking about giving my money to someone who's going to be able to reinvest it at at high rates and not just going to be able to, but will. (laughs) I think a lot of people get lost in terms of like, the opportunity to reinvest, and they stop thinking there. And I think the advantage of thinking about someone like Bruce Flatt is what is likely to be done. So he he not only has opportunities to reinvest at high rates, but he's likely to do it on your behalf. And I think those are pretty rare breeds. The book The Outsiders is a good one I'd recommend to read uh, on that one by Will Thorndike. Uh, He speaks about like uh, eight different... CEOs over the years that have been really excellent in that type of model. And I think like Mark Leonard is another, another constellation. And I think that's another reason I'm kind of comfortable with that position. But yeah, like Brookfield to me anyway, I know it's a bit controversial right now with some of their holdings, but to me, I'm I'm kind of comfortable with that type of individual kind of reinvesting what theoretically kind of belongs to me, like the future cash flows if you think of the future cash flows of a business belonging to the investor in some way, then you really are putting your trust in management to do the right thing with those cash flows. And someone like Bruce Flatt uh, has traditionally kind of been able to demonstrate that he he's going to do the right thing there and, and has aligned his interests as well. So it's kind of a long-winded answer, but I think it's it's not as easy as saying like I'm making some kind of jockey bet. I don't necessarily like that analogy as much you know you hear some people saying it's a bet on the jockey and that kind of thing and I think if it's just a bet on the jockey I don't know that that's quite enough for me but that's kind of I think I'm still kind of forming my (laughs) thoughts on it I guess but I think it if you're going to be long term then it's a pretty important factor to think about
0: yeah I agree I think that like you I feel like the more you know the more you realize you don't know kind of thing And, you know, there's a very real possibility that I'm the five year old in the room when we talk about investing. And the reason I say that is because management teams to me when I first started really didn't seem that important. But like you, as I progress further, and I bought some companies who haven't done well, I'm thinking, you know, if there was somebody else in charge, they probably would have because they missed this opportunity, they missed that and you watch it over the years and you say, why would they make that decision? And then they just go ahead and do it and they burn in flames. So it's kind of like, you know, maybe I should give my money to somebody who is going to be responsible with that money. And it's not necessarily I agree with you, I don't think it's a bet on the jockey. I think, certainly in the case of Constellation and Berkshire and, you know, Brookfield, it's kind of the culture of the business too it's not necessarily the CEO guy in charge. It's just that the nature of that business is to conserve capital and invest responsibly. And I think it runs through entire companies. I don't, I don't think that it's necessarily just the CEO and I think that organizational culture is a really difficult thing to build and a very unique thing to find when you find a good one. So, you know, I think there's more to it than just who the guy in charge is. Uh, you know, obviously they make the most important decisions, but mm-hmm. they're going to surround themselves with the, the right people too. Yeah. Um, I don't know if there's anything
1: else you, you want to add to that. I was just thinking as well, like, yeah, um, you know, if you want, if you don't believe me, then if you invert the question, then you can almost be like, well, where my, you kind of mentioned it there, like, where are often, like, my biggest mistakes in investing? Um, and it's because management teams did really stupid things that I should have recognized um, kind of the red flags earlier with either their track record or their incentives or just the way they talk about the business, how they, like, do they talk about investors as being long-term partners or, you know, how do they, how do they talk about time horizons? Like Copart is probably another great example of, they speak in decades and they're, they're talking about where the business is going. So you know, if you can find examples like that, and and get get comfortable with the business, uh, and and you have a management teams like that, it's like you know those those opportunities don't exist everywhere, so they're the exception. So.
0: Yeah. And I think on that, it's really important to listen to the quarterly calls. And, you know, I just was going to say there's really good at quarter Q U A R T R for anybody yeah, who's that's interested. Great. And you can just pull up your company and you can listen to their earnings calls. And, you know, if you get a weird vibe from the CEO and, you know, maybe that's something you wouldn't have read in the text, let's say, you know, you can sort of get a feel for people when you listen to them talk and it's, you know, it's, I don't want to put too much on this like I don't want to be too heavy because like you know there are way more things to think about than the management and whether you get a weird feeling from the CEO when they talk but it's just it's something to be aware of I think and I, I think you make a really good point that it's it's definitely something you can't ignore moving forward and maybe that's just maturity in in your investing journey and and mine as well and it's definitely something I need to to work more on um but yeah with that said I think that you know we've covered a lot today I really appreciate you coming back on the show um before I let you go, I want to just uh, give you an opportunity to uh, leave any thoughts you had on your on your mind, you, if you want to help anybody out who's listening, and also uh, an opportunity to share where people can find your your content.
1: Yeah, for sure. Uh, thanks for having me on, Joe. I, I always have fun uh, talking with you here. And um, yeah, if, if people want to find me, uh, you know, Twitter and, and my Substack, stack, uh, financialsafetyinvesting.com is definitely the, the way to find me there. Um, you know, I think the only other thoughts that I have in my mind now are like, it's always so interesting to follow what's going on in the news and everything. And it's just, it's so easy to get kind of lost in and all, in all that kind of headline stuff. And it's nice to have this kind of conversation with someone. So I, I would suggest, you know, anyone else out there, Uh, whether it's with someone like you, Joe, or, or other people just have like a, a real meaningful conversation with someone and and don't just read kind of the news headlines and, and where the stock market is today versus yesterday kind of thing. So I think it's helpful to ground people that way.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate that. And I agree. I think that you can find, you know, kind of conversations online as well through podcasts or or any other means that are, you know, maybe not quite as clickbaity as the media. Maybe it's really easy to get pulled into that macro world. And, And I'm totally guilty of it, but it's just kind of, you know, a guilty pleasure of mine to follow the... All oh, the ins and out of the, the macro. <laughs> yeah. I'm not saying don't do it, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just, you know, know what you're reading for yeah, sure. But sure. yeah, um, yeah, with that said, I appreciate you coming on and uh, look forward to your future blogs and content. Thanks, Joe. All the best. Yeah, you as well. All right. So I will stop that. Joe is not a financial advisor and may have interest in the stocks discussed on the show. So do not take any information included within this podcast has a
1: recommendation or formal advice. Thank you.